Hi, everyone. This is Randy Wharton, CEO of Maxio, and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings SaaS experts to you to help us understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. Today, I am very excited to talk with Ron Baker, longtime uh, influencer in the broader finance and accounting space. He started off at KPMG as an accountant, spun out his own firm in 1987, Baker & Baird. And then he introduced the concept of value-based pricing, which we'll get into today. And in 2000, started a company called Verisage. In his spare time, he's written seven books covering the ideas of how do you think about pricing more broadly, business model disruption, and the future of accounting. So please welcome Ron Baker. Oh, thanks so much, Randy. I'm honored to be here. Yeah. I think the other thing which is great is you've got like seven books. I've just tried to get one book out and I can't get it out, but you've written seven books over the time. I guess one of the earlier ones was in the Professional's Guide to Value Pricing and you've uh, several other ones, The Firm of the Future, Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters, Mind Over Matter, Implementing Value Pricing and the Soul of the Enterprise. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were writing about value pricing before anybody was even talking about value pricing? So clearly there was an opportunity you identified early on. But then what's been the through line through your books since then? Really talking about bus business model evolution. I mean, I think uh, if you look at disruptive threats in any industry, as Andy Grove said, the late Andy Grove, um, they come from new business models, not new technology, but from new business models. You think about what Napster did to the music industry, and then Steve Jobs came and saved it with his business model of the iPod and the iTunes store. You can think about uh, Uber and taxi cabs, Airbnb and hotels. I mean, disruptive threats come from business models. That's how they materialize. And, you know, what kills you doesn't look like you a lot of times. So it's really hard to sometimes identify these threats for an industry because they usually come from the outside. So yeah, that's, that, I was that's trying great. to I, I was trying to propose a new business model in in all of these books um, and just say, look, we you know the, the hourly billing method is completely dead. It's you know it was practically a hundred years old at the time, and uh, it was time to move on. You know, I mean, the world's moved on. And of course, now with AI, I think it's even gotten, um, you know, more important to move off of, you know, billing based on time for professionals. Got it. So that was the, at the very beginning when you were talking about value pricing, moving from the hourly based model for accountants, CPAs and how they charge for their services. What was the first evolution that you saw as the as the value pricing, because we will get to the point of now you're uh, sponsoring, proposing, supporting subscription billing models for firms. And, and that's probably an evolution, but that first evolution, what was the disruptive idea that you saw out there and that you started talking about? Well, well it was getting rid of charging based on time and then even more dire for a lot of firms was telling them they needed to get rid of their timesheet. They needed hmm. to stop tracking people in six minute increments like they were prisoners. I mean, I think the only place time spent should matter is in prison. What matters is duration <laughs> to the customer. You know, right. uh, look at look at somebody like FedEx. What do they measure? They measure whether or not they drop it on your doorstep at eight o'clock in the morning. They don't measure how long it sat on the truck and the and the airplane and then the sorting center. You know, they they care about results. They care about on time delivery, and we just don't measure that as a profession. And the and I thought the culprit was the timesheet. I still do. I still think the timesheet is one of the biggest reasons why 
talent is being driven from the accounting profession. Nobody wants to track their time in six-minute units. It's crazy, it's stupid, and it's a superfluous data point. That's really interesting. So this idea around outputs. And so the firms that are doing it well, what are they doing differently? I mean, I got it. They got rid of the timesheet, but how do they, because it is a DNA thing. You've, you've grown up as an accountant, and I guess even as an accountant, you're dotting I's, crossing T's, you're working in the Excel, super easy to transfer that to timesheet. It's very accountable. You can control it. Uh, it's very atomic. But as you make this leap to this value-based pricing, this value-based delivery of services, what are some of the ones, the people that are doing it really well, what are they doing differently and how they think about approaching their clients, the structure of the service agreements, et cetera? For value pricing, it's a, it was just a different mindset. You're, it's more of an entrepreneurial mindset than a production mindset. It's more of being a true professional, you know, definition of a professional, somebody who's accountable for creating a result, not performing a series of tasks. If I want a series of tasks, I'll hire a day laborer, you know, walk my dog, mow my lawn, clean my gutters. But if I hire a professional, I'm looking for some type of outcome, perfect eyesight from an eye doctor, you know, that type of thing. And the problem with the timesheet and the billable hour, the mindset that it creates is that's what we sell. If you make people track six minutes of every day, they think that's their inventory. That's not their inventory. Knowledge and expertise and wisdom is their inventory. That's really what they're selling. And that can't be denominated in time. It's like plunging a ruler into an oven to determine its temperature. It's the wrong measuring stick. And so the firms that get it right have made pricing a core competency. I mean, Randy, there's been a pricing revolution going on in corporate America, in fact, around the world, since about the mid-80s. Organizations like the Professional Pricing Society and others, today I can get an MBA in pricing, I can get a master's, I can get a PhD in pricing because of behavioral economics and, and price theory and economics. They've kind of blended, and we know a lot more about pricing than we did even 30, 35 years ago. It's been elevated into the C-suite in corporate corporate America. Usually you'll see pricing teams in corporate America. These people are not finance people. They're not cost accountants. They're professional pricers. And uh, I mean, uh, give you one example. UPS, I think, has about 225 of them. And that's all they do is price. Yeah. In fact, just two examples of that. One, I was at Salesforce and we were creating, we were trying to transform the way that we package services. So you buy your software and you get your service. The old legacy on-prem model was you paid 15% for maintenance and support. As people migrated to the cloud, so going back to your point, SaaS being a combination of both SaaS delivery, so software delivery over the cloud, as well as a business model, which is the subscription paid out of um, OPEX, not CAPEX, uh, it carried a lot of the legacy on-prem models with it. One of them was pricing. And we actually hired a pricing expert to come in and help us think about how could we reframe the services that we were offering because there was a lot of value that we were delivering as, as Salesforce beyond just the 10% of the software, which everyone had been trained for. And so we created an a la carte menu. We let people have a point system. I probably overcomplicated it, but to your point, we had a couple of uh, pricing experts come in and help us. Similarly at, at Maxio, when I came on board, the board said to me, uh, Randy, we need to rethink our pricing. And we hired two experts to come in and help us look at what we were doing. We did a bunch of research. We launched new pricing last year. And after a year of being on uh, as CEO, we did a, a refresh. So I think you're absolutely spot on, Ron, in terms of pricing being a capability that you either build in-house or 
rely on experts to help inform and, and do pricing studies, seeing what's happening. I think we were sharing an article about uh, the recent uh, increase in uh, SaaS prices. You're seeing a lot of pressure on right. on public companies to increase their revenue and profit. And the num- often the number one lever is raise price. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. So absolutely. That, in fact, that would be an, another theme of the books. But just my advice generally to firms and even CFOs in industry mm-hmm. is we got to move off this cost plus pricing model. You know, co- price is not determined by the sum of your cost plus a desired profit. Pro- prices justify costs incurred they don't determine price they justify costs so if you, if, you, if what you should do is you should start with customer value and work backwards because it's customer value that sets the ultimate upper bound of your price people think it's the competition it's not otherwise there wouldn't be companies like apple disney fedex that can that can command a huge premium it's it's in the value to the customer and then it's that price where you say, okay, now at this price, can we produce this product or deliver these services at a at, at the cost it's going to take, and you know, live with the profit that we make? And that chain is completely different than cost plus accounting, which starts from the premise: oh, we have costs and profit desires, so the world owes us a living. <laughs> the world doesn't owe you a living; it was here first. Um, it, just because a business has costs and and desired profit doesn't mean it's going to produce something of value. Otherwise, no business would go bankrupt. Yeah, and I think very similar as we're thinking about software and positioning, what is the price you pay? Every Almost every incremental unit is, is very low cost, but you've had all those initial investments in terms of software and people and building. And so framing the conversations in terms of value and having to have that value conversation throughout the relationship with a customer so that time of renewal is something that is a non-issue because if you continue to, to, to educate on... Um, value. Well, let's maybe let's do a shift because I'm new to the selling to the CFO and the ecosystem. And you've been in this space for a super long time, primarily focused on the accounting and the accountancies, helping them to invent themselves. One of the themes that I heard about recently was this idea of client advisory services 2.0. And when we chatted, you were like, Randy, this whole cast 2.0 thing has been going on for 30 years. We haven't made any traction with it. It's a bunk a bunk. So can you give me a little bit of background in terms of why you think it hasn't made progress in 30 years and what needs to be true for people to really be able to embrace and, and move the idea of the CAS 2.0 forward? Yeah, and when I say CAS hasn't made progress in 30 years, I don't necessarily mean the accounting compliance. Oh, we're Correct. really good at that. And we yeah. can take somebody's you know back office and make it our front office and, and they outsource their accounting. That's all fine. But to me, that's just bookkeeping. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that we have so many CPAs out there being involved in that type of work, I have to say, it gives me incredible pause because it's like having surgeons pierce ears. I didn't become a CPA to do bookkeeping work. Sorry, I just didn't. And it's not to belittle bookkeeping. It's incredibly important to have clean financials, to make better decisions for the future and all of that, have correct data. But you, you don't need a surgeon to pierce an ear. You know, this is why doctors have physician assistants and RNs that can, and this is why our profession has bookkeepers that can do a lot of this work or accounting people. They don't need to be a full-fledged CPA. I mean, it's kind of a separate topic, but the real thing that CAS, where CAS has not taken off is the advisory. Right. You know, we say, oh, we, we want to, you know, not just uh, report on history. We want to help our customers make history by, you know, being involved in strategic decisions and helping them with that. And I think that's 
kind of fallen flat on his face in most firms, not all firms. I'd say about 20% of them do it really well. But the ones that do it really well are specialized. They're the ones that know everything about, say, microbreweries because that's all they do. If I see a firm that says, oh, well, we can do you, you go on any firm's website and look at the industries they serve, and, and you'll see 40, 50, 60 things that, you know, construction, real estate, medical, <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, how can they be experts in all these areas? They're a 50 person firm. It, right. It's just impossible. I think if CPAs ran, if, if CPAs were veterinarians, their signs would say, you know, veterinarian and taxidermist. That way they could say, either way, you get your cat back. I mean, they just try and be all things to all people. <laughs> Got it. So forecast to work, going along that path uh, that we were exploring before, the distinction between a series of tasks versus result orientation, one of the keys is vertical expertise. Right. So understanding the nuances, I used to talk about that with uh, selling, like you could sell into travel, but selling travel is super different when you're selling to hotels versus airplanes versus car rentals, butts and seats versus heads and beds. And, and the mm -hmm. language you used, uh, the way you, uh, how they thought about getting people, the acquisition costs are all very unique to the sub verticals. And so what you're suggesting is that the 20% of accounting firms that are doing well by being advisors is they have context, industry context. Probably they know a bunch of people and they've got a bunch of, uh, they're able to do pattern matching. It's kind of like the consulting firms when they come in and they do strategy. Well, part of the reason they can be super successful is strategy at Bain, PCQT and, and, and McKinsey is because they've done hundreds of these strategy projects. So they have a specific, specific area of expertise. Are there other things? So in addition to the vertical focus, are there, because our listeners are primarily SaaS folks. So if they were looking to hire a firm, a CPA firm, uh, they would look for CPA firms that have specialized focus in SaaS. What are the other characteristics of the 20%, the winners that are uh, have evolved their model to this CAS 2.0 and they really are advising? Because there's a series of uh, early stage companies that don't have CFOs or fractional CFOs until they're about 30 or 40 people. So they're really relying on the CPAs to be their partners and not just do the bookkeeping and making sure people are getting paid, but help them think about their business, even even maybe even raise money. So again, for our early stage type CEOs, early stage CFOs, the partners they're looking for, what are the other characteristics that you've seen of the successful firms? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I'd look for that deep expertise because let's face it, if we were diagnosed with a particular type of cancer, we would travel to Rochester Minnesota to, to consult uh, an oncologist at the Mayo Clinic in our particular type of, of, of diagnosis. But I'm not going to do that for a general physician. So the first thing I'd look for is deep expertise. How many people do they serve in your industry? And I wouldn't put up, I wouldn't, I would never go near a firm. I, I won't go near a plumber who tries to charge me by the hour because that tells me they're not, they're not sophisticated business people. If, if, if a CPA firm in this day and age is still charging by the hour. They're dinosaurs, and we just haven't held the funeral yet. I mean, it, it, that is something. I think that is would be a major, major leading indicator of their business. You know, how can they run? How can they tell you how to run your business if they can't run their own type of thing? So I'd look for a firm that gave you op pricing options, or maybe offered a subscription, and uh, and also gave you a fixed price, so you'd have certainty in your in your accounting costs. 
Um, and so specifically, that's like in a, for an audit. You say, hey, you know, here's the size we are. For this everything. Is how much flex. For okay, everything. So for, for each everything. of those. But let's, let's move into this idea of subscription. Because even I, I mean, I'm in subscription, right? Well, all I do is help companies do subscription. Until I talked to you, I had not heard of firms offering successfully subscription business model. What does that look like? Um, like a retainer fee, it's five to $10,000 a month. And for that, you... You, you get these set of services. I mean, obviously the challenge for the firm is that a client starts sucking up too much time uh, that they're not able to deliver it. So how does a subscription business model work where it's it's good for the client and good for the firm? Yeah, and my model for this, Randy, is the uh, concierge doctors and the direct primary care doctors. Concierge doctors usually target the 10% of the top wealth earners or income earners in the country because their prices are like 40,000 per family per year. But they're your concierge doctor. They take care of everything that that you need medically that they can do. Now, a general physician can't do oncology. They can't do cardiac surgery. They can't, you know, you're gonna be, you're gonna be taken to a specialist, but they're gonna quarterback that relationship. Well, since uh, concierge doctors hit the scene in 1996, their baby cousins have kind of been rising up and they're known as direct primary care physicians. So DPC docs, and they charge anywhere from a hundred to $300 a month. So this is like having a, a, you know, a range of restaurants at various value and price points, right? Or hotel brands, that type of thing. You have the Ritz Carlton and then you've got the Hilton Garden Inn, right? And the DPCs are kind of in that middle space and at the bottom of the space. But the thing is, again, whatever you need that they can do, there's the constraint, is you're covered. You're co- so if you get audited, we do, we, if we defend audits in the firm and we do your taxes, you're covered. So you're giving the customer simplicity. You're giving them convenience. You're giving them peace of mind. You're giving them insurance that they're going to be taken care of no matter what. And you're there for them. And because the model requires less customers, you always have capacity to deal with last minute issues because you're not running around with your hair on fire trying to serve 22,000 customers. You, we CPAs can't just, we just can't have an impact on people if we have too many customers. If we reduce our customers, then we can have a bigger impact on their life and therefore create more value and therefore charge two times, three times, four times more than we're charging now because customers will pay to avoid you know, save, I mean, they'll pay to save time. Basically, we all will pay a fortune to save time. Think of what we pay in convenience to save time. You know, you might subscribe to your vacuum cleaner. You might, you know, pay for clear at the airport. Uh, we'll pay a fortune to save time. And our, the profession is not tapping into that. Well, let me ask you this, because one of the things that we wrestled with at Salesforce when we were trying to create monetized services was you gave people credits, right? Tokens they could use them for different types of services and they would expire over a period of time. And you were trying to do that to manage the amount of uh, uh, commitment you have in the marketplace. And what you end up with is, well, at the end of every quarter, people are like, oh gosh, I need a Salesforce audit. And and now you're working 140% because everyone wants to redeem their tokens. I would imagine with a advisory services doing a subscription model, there, there are crunch times throughout the year where you got to get your audits done. You got to get your end of year reports done. You got to get your quarterly reports done. So part of the challenge is planning for the peaks of demand. Uh, you're going to have valleys, which you're out playing golf and doing all that fun stuff. But how in a subscription model is a firm? I mean, clearly as a client, I don't care, except for when I call and say, hey, I need an audit or I just got called in. 
because they're going to get audited. I need you today. And you're like, well, sorry, I got four other people that I got to support. So how does a firm manage that capacity challenge successfully at the, the intersection between supply and demand? Right. It's a great question. And look, my question is, how do they do it now with the billable hour? The fact is they don't. You know, it's all a crapshoot with the billable hour. They never really know, at least with subscription, you have a, a very planned capacity. You know what is definitely coming in, and then you can always reserve capacity for things that are going to come up at the last moment because they always do. Because, again, we're working with fewer customers. Just to give you an example of this, a, a general physician in the United States has a panel of patients at 2,400. This is why you get to spend five minutes with your doctor because they're on a fee-for-service treadmill. They're only paid when they do something to you. Well, the direct primary care physicians max out at 600 patients. That's 75% less. But that means their offices don't have waiting rooms. That means they'll come to your office. They'll come to your home. The average appointment with a DPC doc is two hours. I know because my dad is a member of one, and he spends an hour and a half, two hours with his doctor because they're there not just to get you well when you present with an illness. They're there to keep you healthy. And that's a different mindset. And totally. we don't do that. I'm going to sign up. This is great. I love the well, idea. You know, th this is fascinating. <laughs> Amazon just recently pur purchased One Medical, which is the largest DPC uh -huh. practice yeah. in the United yeah. States, yeah. for $3.9 yeah. billion. If you're a prime member, you can subscribe for 144 bucks a year, and you have your own DPC. And this isn't just virtual. They have brick-and-mortar offices. You can, you can actually go see them. Um, I used to, I used to actually, I hadn't realized that was a DPC, but I used to belong to one medical primarily because I wanted to have access. I traveled all the time and I wanted to have access to a consistent system when I was in New York, Boston, Atlanta, if anything sure. were to happen. But I also appreciated being able to get the appointments same day. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's really how they manage their capacity because yeah. they work with fewer customers. So they always have capacity and you should always have capacity anyway. I mean, the last yeah. thing you want to hear from your dentist with a toothache is we can fit you in in two weeks. That's yeah. unacceptable. You, I mean, my eye surgeon did that to me and I, I, I blew my top. I said, why don't you have a subscription program so I can cut yeah. to the front of the line? Yeah. And he said, Oh, yeah. like concierge doctors. I said, yes, because there's a segment of your customers willing to pay right. for it. You know? Yeah. And yeah. It's the willingness to pay, right? Segmentation yeah. of your customers. Uh, if you think about the, uh, it's interesting because as we think about our customer base, we have large customers, and and you you do your unit cost economics, and you figure out what you're what, what you're able to do, and how much you're going to invest, and to ensure that they're happy, and you're going all in. Uh, and for your smaller customers, a lower price point, small customers don't have small needs; they still need things, and so you have sure. to be really. Um, uh, deliberate, intentional, and creative in how you create scaled services so that they feel like they're getting what they need. But I do think to your point, there is this differentiation in willingness to pay and understanding uh, and it's, uh, who's willing to pay for what. And to your earlier point, save time is just a great, a great point. So um, maybe making us, well, I guess one last to close off on that. Do you have a, a general sense in terms of what an, uh, an average firm sizes, how many clients they would have, and if they were to shift to the subscription model, what that would look like. So the the, the analog to the general physician of 2,400 uh, clients to DPC of 600 patients, What's what's what does that look like in a firm? In a firm, yeah. That's a really hard, because as you know, the the accounting profession is so bifurcated between the, you know, the, right. the, the top 10 and then the 100th and the 200th. And I mean, most firms are sole proprietors. 
for crying out loud with no really even no team members so for right. them and 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 we're seeing the same thing with subscription that we saw with the transition from hourly billing to value pricing it's the smaller firms doing it first okay. innovation is never a top-down process mm -hmm. it's always bottom up and so we're starting to see the smaller firms experiment and i actually believe bookkeepers are going to jump onto subscription probably faster than cpas first off because they already have fewer customers than cpas second off they have a stronger relationship with them because usually they're out in the coal face they're working with them day in and day out and the customer will usually call the bookkeeper first. The CPAs think they call the CPA first. They don't. I got news for them. They call the book. If they have one, they're calling the bookkeeper first as uh, first point of contact. And that just shows you the relationship is much stronger with the bookkeeper than the accountant. Well, that's interesting. And that uh, obviously then they'll need a technology to help them manage their subscriptions. And that's where Maxio can play. But if we went back to the the firm and you had written a book about the firm of the future and we had talked about entities that have deep expertise, they charge by services. And that's where we got down this path. Is there any other dimension or component you would layer in to thinking about a, for a CEO of a software company as they're evaluating a firm? It sounds a little bit like a really strong bookkeeper is a good place to start before you hire that fractional CFO. And that's, that bookkeeper can help you move from cash accounting or accrual accounting. Is there Are there some other dimensions you would offer for best practices for early stage yeah, uh, startup I, guys? I, 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 especially for startups, but I think all businesses CPAs are very capable of, of helping a business move forward. You know, we provide hindsight, which is most of our job, right? We're looking backwards with the data. We're, we're kind of like historians with really bad memories. But uh, and with the cloud and real time and SaaS accounting, we've been able to provide more real time, what I would call insight. But what customers are just begging for, and we're not doing a good job, except maybe that 20%, is foresight, helping them strategize about the future. And a lot of CPAs, I think, believe strategy is planning. But a strategy is not a plan. A plan is predictable. We're going to do this, 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 and this. But a strategy is a theory. It, it, it requires you to say, will the market go for this? Will customers go for this? How are we going to implement? Where are we going to play best to our strengths and you know, offset our weaknesses? It's, it's a theory of the market and the business, and we don't, we don't do a good job here. And this is why I think, again, CAS has failed or the move to advisory. Um, that's because CPAs consider themselves experts. So if you ask a CPA a tax question, an audit question, they're going to give you an answer because that's part of their self-esteem. That's part of their knowledge base. That's part of how they perceive themselves. And if they can't answer it, they're going to go look it up real quick and get back to you with an answer. But a consultant, like you were mentioning Bain and McKinsey and all those, these are snot-nosed kids, 22 years old, coming out with MBAs, <laughs> right? They know nothing. But here's the difference. CPAs are paid for answers. At least they think they are. Consultants are paid for the question. And what McKinsey has is more beautiful questions. Because as you know, Socrates said, half the wisdom's in the question, not the answer. It's like Peter Drucker used to say when he consulted, he said, I lead with my ignorance because I have to, I, I can't go in there thinking I know the solution. The customer knows the solution. What you need to do is prod them with more beautiful questions. And I don't think the profession can get their head around that because they consider themselves to be ex experts. And if they lead with questions, they're going to feel stupid. 
wow, that is a really interesting distinction. I think, do you think part of it is the type of person that is attracted to the accounting profession is ones are those who like certainty. And so oh, being absolutely. able to dot I's and cross T's and, and, and be balance. blind. And mm-hmm. balance. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you debits equal credits, right? Right. But in the in the real world, Randy, debits don't equal yeah. credits. The yeah, world's right. a mess. It's complex. Yeah. It's yeah. a complex adaptive yeah. system. And yeah. and debits and credits just have no room. But we accountants, we just love to balance. If this is why I think our profession sometimes would rather be precisely wrong rather than approximately right. And I rather be approximately right. And so for that early stage startup who's evaluating a CPA partner, is there a like a question that you would have them ask to ascertain their strategic chops? Uh, is there a service that you've seen some of these top 20% accounting uh, advisory firms offer that would indicate that they're more able to embrace the questions in the strategy process? Yeah, those are really good. That, that's a really good question. I I would talk to the firm. You know, a lot of firms will lead with their problem solvers. You know, we're going to come in, we're going to solve your biggest problems. We're going to pick the low-hanging fruit. Okay, great. CPAs, like lawyers, we're great problem solvers. You know, you have the IRS on your back. We can get a stay. We can get your bank account restored. You know, all of those things. Great. We're great problem solvers. But as a CEO of a company, if all you do for me is solve my problems, you've just reverted me back to the status quo. You haven't advanced me. I would ask them, how do you advance your customers? Don't bore me with how you solve problems because I expect you to be able to do that. That's a table stake. That's like a hotel having clean sheets and towels, right? I expect that. And they're not going to get any points if they have it. They're going to get a lot of demerits if they don't have it. But what I want to know is, are you able to guide me from where we are to where I want to be, some desired future state, help me grow the business, help me, you know, get new funding or whatever it might be, an SBA loan, whatever it is, are are they able to guide me through those transformations and keep me from, you know, stepping on landmines? Those are the types of questions I would ask because way too many accountants focus on problem solving. That's great. I love the distinction that you're driving. One of the things we talk about in the, the whole premise of this show is that there's a disruption in the office of the CFO being driven by uh, technology. But uh, your point, which I'm going to add to my future narrative, is around business model disruption, which I think is spot on. Uh, and then we also talk about the evolution of the CFO. And one of the things we talk about the CFO role is moving from the back office to the front office, moving from compliance and governance to actually having a seat at the table with the CRO and the CEO when you're talking about go-to-market strategies. And the only way you do that is if you take the historical data and you can roll it into a, a system, not a Maxio system, but one of the FB&A systems where you're doing planning, but also you can start to think about things like pricing and packaging to our earlier conversation. Where are we today? What are we seeing broadly across our segments, cohorts, by customers, by region, by product? What are the experiments we want to execute? Uh, what do we want to do in terms of a sales-led motion versus a PLG motion? All of that is something like a CPA could be helping a early-stage company do, much like a CFO would help a company in that Series C, Series D zone. So I think this whole evolution of the accounting and finance function and ecosystem moving from just being around compliance to really being around strategy, possibility, in creating, um, uh, I like your language, advancing a company. 
advancing a company? How do you help the company take advantage of the opportunities, the greenfield opportunities out there? I know um, as CEO, it's third time CEO gig, one of the things I'm always worried about is I'm missing an opportunity and, mm. and thinking about the allocation of capital. Are we putting the right uh, allocation in terms of Horizon 1 bets to, to deliver what we need to for our current customers, Horizon 2? And do we have enough capacity on Horizon 3 bets, which is going to be where the company is going to go in the next three to five years that we don't even know about right now? And so I think to your point, uh, for when you're evaluating a CPA firm, is can they be a partner, a strategic partner as you go through these next stages? Is uh, And they had to have done it before. They got to be able to show that they've done it for some of the other folks and help them navigate the process for getting funded, maybe even helping with the pitch decks, how to tell the story with the numbers, right? Helping that early stage founder, CEO, uh, get funded and, and stay funded. Well said. I, 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 well said. You know, I think I sent you the Peter Drucker's last public speech. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that's kind of a warning to CFOs, yeah. I think, because Peter Drucker basically came out and told a room full of CEOs, the person that you should listen to least in your organization is your CFO. And I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I read this because, you know, yeah. it's like, whoa, he's, he's banging our industry. But yeah. he has a point that we're so caught up on the past, the data and getting the numbers right, that we're, we're missing the future. You know, data and knowledge is by definition about the past entrepreneurship is about the future and what matters is being willing to take risks you know peter drucker used to say there's three types of risks uh an organization can take the risks that it can afford to take and obviously should the risks it can afford to take you know the rolling the hot dog cart against the red light you know white could completely wipe you out but then there's the risk a business can afford not to take mm. because it, i'll tell you profits come from risk and i I've asked roomfuls of CFOs, Randy, you, you wouldn't believe it, top 50 CFOs, top 100 CFOs, where do profits come from? You could hear a pin drop. And then they'll say customers, some will say value, some will say uh, revenue minus cost. No, that's mm -hmm. the definition. That's right. <laughs> um, no, profits come from risk. That's the only place they could ever originate because, I mean, Steve Jobs wasn't guaranteed a profit with the iPod, the iPhone. They, the market could have rejected. In fact, the market did reject a bunch of his products. Yeah. Lisa, Newton, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an uncertain world. But, you know, Drucker said, boy, if you're not taking risks, if you're not sawing off the limb you're on, somebody else is going to do it to you. I mean, this was, this was Andy Grove's point again about business model disruption. He said, if we're going to be cannibalized, best to dine with friends yeah yeah right? Let, let's yeah. let's eat ourselves before we're eaten by others so we can control our destiny well, that's great i one of my favorite phrases is only a paranoid survive right? you wake title. up yeah. you wake up every morning and you're like okay what am i missing who's coming after me where's the competition going and i you know i do think ron it can be paralyzing and it can be energizing and right. i think the profile of the business leader who finds risk and opportunity and threats as energizing versus enervating uh, are the ones that are going to be successful, I hope. And I, I know every day, you know, I don't, I haven't nailed it yet, but I think every day I wake up, it is what makes the job exciting is the unknown that we get to explore and the bets we get to make. And look, at the uh, end of the day, you as a CEO get paid to make bets and you got to be more right than wrong. Um, but you also have to be able to step up that other great book, the hard thing about hard things.
right? Is you've got to make the decision. You can take all the input from board and your executives and the front lines and analysts and but you 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 go in you know all in on black one of my other favorite thoughts is uh when you're not ceo you can always leave a company and blame the ceo like it was <laughs> that knucklehead's fault they made the wrong right. choices the wrong bets if you're ceo like at the end of the day there's no one else to blame but you um so it's a lonely job but Ron, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, all the insights you've given, especially around this idea. I think the, the, the key themes for me around this uh, business model disruption, the idea of if you're an early stage CEO or CTO, as you're working with your partner, how to find someone who can really be a partner and not just the, the bookkeeper, the person closing the books, but right. really someone can help you on your strategic journey. And then I love all the other quotes that you provided. Uh, from Drucker and Jobs and others, and the idea that we closed with that profit comes from risks. So how do you think about thoughtfully the risks that you're going to take, the amount you're going to invest, and how do you monitor it over time to ensure you're getting the expected profits? Right. We can we can measure a risk that, you know, we're, we can measure risk somewhat like actuaries do, but there's no measurement for risks we don't take. Yeah, you know, yeah. And those are the opportunities. Um, just on business model disruption, just to give you one success story because it's, it's in my book, Times Up, which is the book on the subscription model. And I just love this story because I find it so inspiring. One, because it's rare. It's really hard to find a story like this. Now, I found about a handful so far. I'm sure there's a few more handfuls. But in 1960s, Randy, you probably remember maybe, I certainly do, um, there was about 316 department stores throughout the yeah. United States. You know, Macy's, oh, yeah, J.C. Penney, yeah. uh, Sears, yep. Woolworth, mm-hmm. uh, all yeah. of that. And yeah. Dayton Hudson was right in there. The other were right in the middle. And the CEO of Hudson at the time said, "You know, we're watching Kmart rise up. Walmart, Walmart hadn't entered yet, but you know, he knew there was room at the bottom, and he knew that was going to be a potential disruptor." Now, Dayton Hudson uh, financially is the top of their game. They're making really good money. There's no burning platform. There's, you know, why change, right? If everything's going well. And this guy says, uh, you know, we need to develop a new store that is more towards the bottom end of the market, but more upscale than say, you know, Sears or Kmart. And they create a little spin out startup. They gave it a separate name, separate brand, separate entity. And they called it Target. And wow. Of course, in 2000, Target, hmm. Dayton Hudson changed their name to Target. Oh, interesting. And the rest yeah. is history. Now, yeah. th- there's not many CEOs that do that. Right. You know, this guy yeah. took a huge risk yeah. and, and he was flying high at the time. Right. And I just love that story. And, yeah. and you know, the other stories, Charles Schwab did the same thing when you got into online brokerage. Uh, but why is it so rare that the incumbents, don't adapt to change they usually get slaughtered by it right and so that's why i find those stories so uh inspiring well that's great so time's up so i haven't read that one i'm going to put that on my list but ron if people want to learn more clearly they can find you on linkedin um and you also have a podcast a long uh running podcast you want to say a little bit about that and what the topic is there and the the guests that you have I do a live show with my colleague, Ed Klass, who is, works at Sage Software, and we've been doing uh, the soul of enterprise.com for uh, coming up on 10 years uh, in July, 
So we're coming up on our 500th episode, which is kind of exciting. We've we've interviewed many business authors, Gary Hamill and Rory Sutherland. We've interviewed many economists, and we've talked about the subscription model and after action reviews and just all the things that we tend to talk about the what we affectionately call the effing debate efficiency versus effectiveness <laughs> you know um and uh that show is available on all podcast players it drops friday after it goes live after we record it live then it drops to all podcast players people can find that and they can check out the show notes at the soul of like you said i'm on linkedin i'm one of the influencers so you can follow me there. I have a hundred or so articles up there. And also I'm on X, um, which is at Ronald Baker. And people can email me too. I'm happy to have a conversation at ron at verisage.com, which is V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E.com. Well, thank you very much, Ron. And I really do appreciate your generosity. And uh, one day I aspire to have a live show that we drop every week on Friday. But right now we're we're pre-recording it and uh, getting it out every other week. But uh, it's been a lot of fun getting a chance to meet people like you. And, and um, I'm going to buy that book, Time's Up, and read it and maybe follow up with a, another conversation. But thank you for your time. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Randy. I'd love to come back. Thank you. Thank you.